You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Hello, everyone. This is episode 25. We've hit the quarter century mark. Episode 25 of Notes from Norwich. I am one of the three hosts of this show. My name is Chris Arnold, and I'm here with Marguerite. How are you, Marguerite? I'm well, thank you. And returning is Jan. We missed you last time, brother, but... uh, uh, Missed you all, too. Glad glad you're back. Finals knocked me on my ass. (laughs) Yeah. So we're recording this uh, on the feast of St. John, St. John, the evangelist. The rubrics are confusing, but it is St. John. Yep. Everything <laughs> shifts, right? By day. Yep. So the, yeah, the 28th of December, that means the uh, end of the year is coming up. So uh, if you're listening to this one, it's likely to come out, which is a few days from now. Uh, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. And let's all pray and hope that 2021 is a better, happier uh, new year than 2020 has been. So today we're talking about chapter 49 and maybe chapter 50 of the Revelations of Divine Love from Julian of Norwich. We're going to see 49 is a little on the long side. Um, and so we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how we do. So where do we begin with chapter 49? To this soul, this was a mighty wonder, which was continually shown in all showings and with great diligence observed that our Lord God, as far as he is concerned, cannot forgive because he cannot be angry. It would be impossible. It's a provocative start. It's so spicy. God cannot (laughs) forgive. What? (laughs) I'm just thinking about if she tweeted that, that would cause such a flame war on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's honestly really radical. This idea that God doesn't forgive like it's, it's, it's a lack of forgiveness, not because he's not willing to forgive, but because there is no anger to abate. And that, that, that idea that there is no wrath. Um, and she's very strongly, it's impossible. She's wrath and friendship are two opposites. Um, she's very emphatic that God has no wrath and is not angry. Um, which is beautiful, but does raise the question for me, what do we do with God's wrath as displayed and discussed in scripture? And for that matter, what do we do with God's forgiveness as is discussed in scripture? That too. Good point. Um, like it's a, it's a compelling idea. And I struggle to square it with Revelation. Revelation meaning the book of Revelation? Or no, Revelation? I mean, I mean oh. meaning God's revelation to us. Okay. Yeah. So let's, so the, those of you who are uh, listening to this podcast, who don't have the book in front of you, you might be scratching your head uh, feeling like, I want to make sure that, that you haven't missed what we have just 
scene, Julian say, she is saying that that as she, as she understands it, God does not, cannot forgive, which is a pretty bold thing to say. And the reason why God can't forgive is basically there is nothing to be forgiven because God cannot be angry. It is impossible for God to be angry. So since God can't be angry, God can't be offended or hurt or uh, uh, or we can't we can't find ourselves in a situation where God needs to forgive us because forgiveness is based on this idea. Um, and maybe, maybe this is where we can dig into forgiveness is, is grounded in this idea that there's an offense caused. Right. So if, if JN says something to hurt my feelings, then he can ask then for my forgiveness and I can say, yes, I forgive you. But that's based on this idea that, there is a wound, uh, there is harm that is done that needs to be resolved or addressed. And so Julian seems to be saying that she sees that in God there is no harm done. There's no anger, there's no wrath, there's no violation. God isn't hurt. So therefore God isn't offended. So therefore we are never in a situation where God needs to forgive us. So God doesn't forgive us. Is that, does that, would you say it any differently, you two? I would, I would not say it differently. I think what we need to realize is that for Jayan to say something offensive to you, Chris, you and Jayan are at a parallel level. You're both beings on this planet and you have interchanges of that, of all different kinds, but you can have that kind of an interchange. You can be offended because you and Jayan are even Stephen, as it were. Mm-hmm. Whereas God is not. God is not a being. God isn't. So for God to be angry, it would be ungodlike for him to be angry. It would be acting like one of us and the narratives in scripture that you alluded to Jayan, where God is angry and then God forgives and everything's right again. And then the people offend God and then God gets angry again. This happens over and over and over back and forth all through, all through the narratives in scripture. I see that as a human way of describing a dynamic that happens with human beings. I don't, and, and in fact, whenever God does change his mind, it's always, he just changes his mind out of the blue. It's not because of anything that humans do. God just says, wait a minute, this isn't me. I can't be like this. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to take care of everybody again. So the bottom line for me is that Julian is exactly right when she says that God cannot be offended, that God cannot be angry, and that God does not forgive us in the sense that you forgive somebody who offends you. God always loves us. God's, God's love and care is always there. We just don't always see it or feel it or or 
understand it. And I'm wondering, it's it's like the whole thing is predicated on this idea that forgiveness is related to wrath or anger. Like God can't forgive because God can't, doesn't feel anger or wrath. But if somebody asked me for forgiveness, I, uh, is, is my act of forgiving someone based on wrath that needs to be resolved in me? Or is it based on the, the, that person's request for reconciliation for them as much as for anything else? Does that make sense? Like people have asked me for forgiveness. I've asked other people for forgiveness as well. But, um, but people have asked me for forgiveness for things for which I personally, I, you know, didn't even re- realize that they had happened. Um, so I, I wasn't wounded or hurt or upset or, or harmed by it, but the person who asked me for forgiveness obviously perceives some guilt, some shame or regret or something, some, something in them, the person asking for forgiveness needing to be restored. So, and, and so they ask me for forgiveness and, and I say, yeah, sure, of course I, for, I forgive you. Um, but that is not something in me that needs to be right. laid to rest, but it is me responding, giving the gift of forgiveness to the need that is in the other person, which troubles this for me. So I'm, um, I might get the saint wrong. It's, is it Anselm who like, talks about this, like se- uh, redemption is satisfaction and like there's there is an offense given to god and because it god's greatness is infinite the the satisfaction for that offense needs to be infinite is that anselm it is yeah anselm okay. of canterbury yeah cur deus homo so i i wonder if that kind of framework is what she's commenting against. Um, because in that, in that situation, like, so we, we incur this offense against God's honor. Um, and for that to be forgiven, I don't know if wrath is a word Anselm would use, but, but there's this, this, uh, this sort of economy of honor and offense mm-hmm. that um, might be lying behind forgiveness here. And like the, and so then we have this, and cause I think I'm thinking about how she's trying to wrestle with the practice and teaching of the church, which is we've, if we've talked about like this, this economy of grace where there's, there is sin and there is reconciliation. Um, And she's wrestling with how that tracks or lines up against this God of love that she's seeing in the revelations. And so I'm 
wondering if maybe what she's doing is troubling the identification of Anselm's understanding of forgiveness as satisfaction of an offense given to great God's greatness. Um, Julian troubling the identification of that with the visible life of the church, which is forgiveness and um, reconciliation. Um, she doesn't, she doesn't do this rhetorically, but like, so what you're describing Chris as what forgiveness is, as far as something granting that seems in line with the way Julian is presenting the, the working out of our salvation, like her, her positive representation of how salvation is worked out, that it's the, uh, it's not some deletion of an offense in a ledger that like deleting your, your wrath um, but it's a, it's a, a shift in the person, in the penitent. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if like, she's taking, she's taking that model, what you're talking about as forgiveness and saying, this is what the church's visible life, um, is about, not this Anselm-like model of offense, wrath, and forgiveness. So I'm, I'm wondering if like what she's meaning by forgiveness here is actually very different from the way the three of us would describe forgiveness. Um, and if this is, this is her kind of wrestling with this received understanding of what sin and penitence and um, absolution and reconciliation means, you know? I might be reading too much into her. Like that <laughs> might, that might be me projecting like what I want her to be saying. Um, She spends the next part of this, I guess is the, the whole, well, she continues on in chapter 49 with saying in different ways that, um, that there is, well, I'm, I'm trying to find a way to say it, which isn't just quoting one of the ways in which she comes right <laughs> out and says, says it, but, uh, I'm not going to. Try very she says hard it in anymore. like five different ways. Yeah, I think she covers uh, all the bases. <laughs> there's no wrath in God. There's like God. Uh, God does not display any of these characteristics of rage, anger, wrath. Grab your thesaurus and add in more <laughs> words. Um, so God is instead a God of friendship, or a, a God whose characteristics include friendship with humanity. Love, humility, gentleness, um, and peace. I saw full certainly that where our Lord appears, peace comes to pass, and wrath has no place. Now that right there could easily be turned into uh, a 
you know, a bumper sticker or a mug or a hand painted tile to sell in our religious goods stores, just as, um, just as adequately as, um, you know, all shall be well, or any of the famous quotes from any of the other saints, you could take that sentence right there and, uh, market that. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people will buy it. So uh, we should open an Etsy store that's, uh, um, t-shirts that say that I saw full certainly that where of Julian. Yeah. <laughs> that where our Lord appears, peace comes to pass and wrath has no place. I mean, it's beautiful. I'm, I'm being a little bit flippant, but it's a beautiful summary that feels, it just, it makes me feel calm just to read it. Yeah. Um, but so as a result of this lack of wrath in God, she says, therefore God cannot forgive. And that's the bit that I, I'm, I'm probably going to wrestle with it for a good long time. Um, because there's, and because there's part of me that still wants forgiveness to be an active part of God's plan of salvation. And it's not, and I want that to be the case, not because I think God is sitting up there in heaven saying, I really need to forgive people today because I'm a hot mess otherwise, but the other way around, because I and all the other humans I know need a God who is forgiving them because we all have plenty of things that we need forgiveness for. Um, and I, so I think there's, there's, I find this chapter a little bit troubling because it's like, if I, if we take away the forgiveness power of God, um, that, that feels a little bit scary. Like the forgiveness of God is one of those things that we find consolation in, right? Maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe that isn't the way that God relates to us in terms of forgiveness. In which case, what do we do with our sins? I mean, this is, yeah, this is, this is what she's wrestling with. And like to tie chapter 50 in, she's, she, she's basically ends the chapter being like, how, how do I understand sin? How should I understand sin in light of this? Um, but this is, this is where I think like your the vision you laid out a few episodes ago of like her of mystics coming to understand the practices of religion in new light um, comes in might come into play here, and that she's not denying this practice of the church in naming sin in confessing sin in absolving sin um but she's kind of teasing it apart from the underlying reality of our status with god um i think without saying either one of them is not real 
Um, and so our need, our need to be forgiven is what is this, why this, uh, this ecclesial machinery of the means of grace is so important. Like we, God, God does forgive us in the church through the, through these, like these visible processes um, that remind us, that bring us back to, or ought to um, this underlying reality that Julian's pointing out. Um, that's kind of where I see it starting to come together. She's, she's wrestling with this tension. She's like, she, she has this, what Holy church teaches her, um, which is like your classic high medieval, like Western, Western Catholic, Sin, absolution, you, penitence. You have committed 96 points worth of sin this week. Right. Go Here's say. A hundred points worth of reconciliation that you can do. Right. And she's. The extras for the poor souls in purgatory. <laughs> she's trying to kind of sit with that, not denying it, and hold it next to this vision of God. And is so, it? and so maybe she's like trying to breathe new life into this concept of sin and forgiveness or this, this machinery of sin and forgiveness by saying it's not actually about this underlying like point system. It's not about this affront that needs to be satisfied with a corresponding ledger item. There is this underlying reality in which we are kept full safely in God. And because we do not see that, because we are prone to forgetting that, there is in this life, this machinery, you know? So she it, it does come around to affirming some kind of basic core doctrinal points that have been pretty mainstream um, positions within Christianity for most of its history. One is the impassibility of God, the idea that God does not change. God is not, God is, is, eternally consistent. Uh, so any apparent inconsistency or change that we perceive in God is due to the fact that we are changing and the way we, anytime we look at God, like when we look at a, a vast mountain as we're walking around it, uh, our perspective changes and we see a different image of the mountain every time we take a step. But the mountain itself doesn't change. Likewise, God does not change 
And yet, throughout the recorded history, we see times when God appears to be present and where God appears to be distant, when God appears to be um, wrathful or jealous or or um, or comforting or consoling or strengthening or standing on the side of one warring party or another, um, or being born in a manger in Bethlehem. And so within the course of human history, we perceive the, the consistency of God as appearing different because we're the ones who are changing, not God. So I think Julian is trying to synthesize, yeah, these, these, these perspectives that, um, that if you had to pick one characteristic of, of God that was eternal and unchanging, it's this loving peace. So maybe we can perceive, maybe we think we see wrath or judgment in God but that actually can't be part of, in order for God to feel wrath, God would need to be changed by our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually makes sense. I mean, one can be a person of of uh, unfocused peace and platitude, and you, you may have met people like that. Uh, I strive to be a person like that and fail consistently it's one of my greatest consistencies is that i fail to be a person of of uh inner peace and love and 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 um in an unfocused way even like it's not directed at anyone i'm just kind of i want to be uh and some people actually are just people who are radiating a general field or mood of peacefulness but i think people who are wrathful who are angry it's almost always directed at specific things mm-hmm. and i think i i do know a few people who are just kind of perpetually grumpy but they're grumpy for specific reasons and they're grumpy or wrathful at specific targets mm-hmm. um so maybe it's possible to say that that uh that God could not be wrathful because God does not change in response to what the creation is doing. And that's why she locates wrath in us. Yeah. Like the, the wrath is on our our end. And she, has, she, has she locates this. peace with wherever God is present. Right. Peace follows. Right. So she has this section, it's page 116 in the Orange Book. Um, And I think she lays out a lot of what's happening here. And I'll just read it. I saw full certainly that all our endless friendship, our place, our life, and our being is in God. Because that same endless goodness that keeps us, that we perish not when we sin, that same endless goodness continually negotiates in us a peace against our wrath and our contrary falling. And with a true fear makes us see our need strongly to seek unto God in order to have forgiveness with a grace-filled desire for our salvation. 
we may not be blissfully saved until we are truly in peace and in love, for that is our salvation. <clears throat> so here, this I, I wanted to bring this up because she mentions forgiveness here in, in her positive construction of theology. Um, and forgiveness is something we have a need to seek for her. She doesn't, she doesn't speak of it as something God grants. It is forget forgiveness is something that we need to see that we need to seek forgiveness. And it's in this, it's in this shift of perception that we, we come to desire our salvation, that we come to desire this peace. Um, so I, th- I think this is, this is important because she's not doing away with the concept of forgiveness. She's just shifting radically what it means. Um, and so it, it becomes God's unchanging love and goodness um, operating in us, continually negotiating in us. This brings to mind, like, I mean, I have family who have toddlers, a lot of them, and it just brings to mind this like, constant negotiation with small children. Um, that God is constantly, continually negotiating in us a peace against our wrath. So the wrath is on our end. God is this unfailing goodness and love. And as we kind of beat our little baby fists against God's goodness, God is moving in us to help us see that we need God that we are in God, that we're dependent on God. And that shift in perception is what leads us to seek forgiveness, the working out of this shift in perception. I think Julian would say that sins, our sins harm us, but they don't harm God. Yeah. That that our sin causes pain and well, she even says death in us, our contrariness, our wrath, our, all our troubles, but they don't hurt God. And so God doesn't get angry with us because God is not hurt. God cannot be hurt. But because God loves us, God shows his love to us, wraps us with his grace and and beauty and love and tenderness. And then we realize that we are forgiven. Mm-hmm. Her idea of forgiven in this passage that you just read, Jan, is more like what the person that came to Chris felt when mm-hmm. Chris didn't know that there was anything that somebody had done, but of course he forgives the person because, you know, out of love and kindness and generosity, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but a, a forgiveness where there, where there is harm done. And so you have to make it up to someone like, for instance, Jane, if I were to come into your house and steal your bedspread, I would have to, you know, in order to to be forgiven by you, I would have to bring your bedspread back or get you a new one or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, that's, that doesn't happen with God. Mm -hmm. That's just not part of God's nature. 
And then later on in this chapter, she goes on to say how God takes all our troubles and that contrariness, which is now in us, our Lord of his goodness makes most profitable for us. Mm-hmm. Because that contrariness is the cause of our tribulation and all our woe. And our Lord Jesus takes those and sends them up to heaven. And there they are made most sweet and delectable. More sweet and delectable than heart can think or tongue can tell. It's this transformation. So all our troubles are just being reformed into sweet, delectable treasures that await us. Yeah. So the primary spiritual problem for Julian, as she sees it, is not um, not so much reality as they are perception. Mm-hmm. That we we don't recognize, we don't realize the way things are um, already. We are already fully protected and cared for and enveloped in God's love. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. And the primary spiritual work is about changing our awareness of that, becoming aware of that, coming to terms um, and appropriating into our assumptions um, and, and, beginning to, and beginning to live our lives as, mm-hmm. as though it were true, even if we don't fully accept it or not. I mean, and that's, you know, arguably that's, that's a big part of the, the Christian life is beginning to live as though the resurrection has already happened. Whether you have experienced or believe that the resurrection has fully happened yet or not, that it's actions it actions then build doctrine, not the other way around, which is something that I think a lot of Christians get backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, that we we think that you you figure out your beliefs first, and then you live your life in accordance with those beliefs. Mm-hmm. I think classic Christianity says no, start living according to these ways later. And then over time, they will shape your beliefs Mm -hmm. in the right way. Um, But that's probably the subject of a whole different podcast. Um, But so does it, it, is this an accurate summary? The Julian's of, of Julian's understanding of the primary spiritual problem. It's not that our souls are damned and we need salvation. It's that we need to recognize we're actually not damned and we mm-hmm. actually are eternally saved already. But that that perception actually has consequences. So it's not like we just need to kind of wake up and smell the coffee, but there are actually, um, it is actually something that is keeping us from God, this realization that we're already in God. Yeah. I think that, that, uh, that last bit's important that the perception has consequences Hmm. Um, because that she's not the spiritual life for her is not a Gnostic ascension into realizing that we're already in God. It's not this like 
simple, oh, we have to have this enlightenment and we, and we suddenly get it. Um, it's this perception is tied in with our actions and our life in this world. And it's, uh, so it's both like a shift in perception um, and the working out of that perception in our lives. Um, and it, the, the rule for Julian Oblates talks about see, seeing God's love and living our lives in response to that love. Um, and, and I think both, both those things are important for understanding Julian, that it's, it's not, it's not just a shift in perception that kind of then lifts us out of the cares of the world. It's a shift in perception that changes how we operate in the world. Um, that, that changes our character, um, to start to conform. We start to live as though this were actually true. Like you said. And so that's why she's not just dismissing sin as something that's an illusion. It's, it's not that sin's an illusion. It's that sin is a product of not seeing properly. So is it foolishness? Is it, is it spiritual maturity to reach a point where we stop asking God for forgiveness? Is that actually a sign of spiritual immaturity? to ask God for forgiveness? Should we be asking God not for forgiveness, but for some other kind of deeper recognition of who we are in God? I mean, she starts out by saying that God can't forgive. So should I stop asking God for forgiveness and ask instead for something closer to the mark? For me, knowing that this old-time economy of offense, contrition, penitence, um, restitution, and then getting God's forgiveness, you know, offending God, making God angry, having God hate me or not like me anyway, and then turning – anyway, when that went away for me, that was when I could start feeling sorry for sin. I could not feel sorry for sin when it was like a banker, you know, back and forth with the money and here's your, here's your check and here's your electricity and whatever. Why not? And then, and I might be, you know, very unusual. I might be really, you know, off the wall about it, but I can tell you for a long, long time of my life being in church, constantly from the day I was born and having religion all the time, you know, it's, it's not just, it wasn't a little thing ever in my life, faith, religion, God, that was never a little thing, but knowing that that, that that transactional business went away made all the difference for me. I wonder why that is. I mean, if, if I really bought into the idea that, that 
my sins were causing harm to God, then I, 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 I would take that seriously. I've never been through that phase, so I'm trying to imagine what that would be like. Um, I think, Marguerite, I, I went through a similar shift, um, though the the schematics of the economy of offense and re- retaliation were different in the tradition I came from. But I think for me, the... the contrition that comes out of that kind of economy of sin is very different from contrition that comes out of an awareness of a relationship that is not all it could be. Is it because if somebody is giving you a list of sins and telling you that you've hurt God by it, that you don't actually think that you've done anything wrong? Or is no. It harder to. No. So I, I, huh. it's not, it's not that like, it's not like I, I take it just as seriously before as I do now, but it's what the nature of the problem is that's a huge shift that it's there's there's contrition because I did something wrong and there is a consequence. And then there's contrition because what I did is keeping this joy from being complete. Hmm. Um, and that first contrition was always tied up with a fear of consequences um, it was never a purely about my relationship with God because the whole concept of sin there was about cause and effect, merit and punishment. Whereas a, a schematic of sin where like Julian is describing, it's all about the fullness of the relationship. And so Understanding sin in that way, you know, like I, I now go to confession burdened, not really because of the, the list of sins I'm bringing to confess, but because I know I'm missing out because of those sins. I know, I know that my relationship with God, my awareness of God's love and my ability to live out my life in response to that love is hindered by these sins. And that's that kind of contrition is not possible, or at least wasn't for me, in a kind of transactional model of sin. Like it, just, it just wasn't, it was not possible. Um, until I shifted my understanding of what sin was. Same. You remember, maybe or maybe not, 
um, when Julian early in the, in the, in our reading asked for the three wounds and the one wound was perfect contrition. Mm-hmm. And perfect contrition is what you're describing, Jan. It's when a sin hurts because it, it just keeps you from God, just that little bit. And that little bit is just unbearable pain. Even if it's what you would consider a tiny sin. I mean, not one of the big, you know, going to jail kinds of things, but just a little, like a little bit of snottiness towards somebody. And it just, it just wounds and burdens. And yeah, that's so, yeah. And I think she, Julian, wouldn't say that asking for forgiveness is a sign of immaturity. No. Like she, in the, in this passage, I just read like she, she lays out the seeking of forgiveness as, as part of this working out of, of the salvation. And I think this, this goes back to where she's, she's not setting aside the church's practice of confession and absolution. She's, understanding it in a new light that that when when we confess when we ask for forgiveness this is what's actually happening rather than not that god is forgiving you because god can't forgive you but but that that we are are, yes so shouldn't we rather pray to be shifted than to ask god for forgiveness if what's really going on is that we are going through a practice that changes our perception of our relationship to God's love, shouldn't we just pray for that instead of saying, uh, I come to God yet again for forgiveness. Except she, she uses for, she uses forgiveness for that too. Like she, Mm -hmm. the shift she's going through is like, this is what I was, what was meant by forgiveness. Mm -hmm. This I mean, she she because she doesn't set aside the word forgiveness either in setting out this this vision of the shift of perception. Yeah, and so and I think part of that is like the what she's learning from Holy Church is that forgiveness is necessary. That seeking forgiveness is necessary. That's the difference. Like she's she's not so she she can't set that aside because she's she's faithful to church teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in 2020, though, where we throw church teaching out the window <laughs> and rewrite the prayer book at the drop of a hat and <laughs> create our own liturgy. So if if we were using, if we were building a whole new sacramental system today based on Julian's teachings, would we still have auricular confession? Or would that look more like spiritual direction? I mean, if if she's I right, have tr- I have trouble, and God like, does not I have forgive trouble adopting us. that premise. Okay, yeah, um, because I I think that's like thoroughly contrary to what Julian would ever want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I I don't I don't think she sees like auricular confession as like an an, an optional. Or like movable piece of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. 
I'm she, still trying to unpack the implications of her saying that God cannot forgive. So then we have this whole ritual that is based around confessing our sins so that we receive the assurance of God's forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just trying to s- explore all the implications of this, including whether or not forgiveness is something that we should, now that we know that God can't forgive, that God doesn't forgive, um, should we readjust our religious language to, to remove forgiveness from what we're seeking in lieu of seeking the, in, the, the transformation of our perceptions. I mean, I think that's certainly what a lot of liberal Protestant denominations have done. Yeah. Um, this is where, very thinly, vaguely where I'm, where I'm heading with all this. Um, <laughs> I think what you lose with that is reckoning with the consequences of the misperception. Um, if it is, because that, that makes it purely about understanding that we've already been forgiven. Um, so one of the things that I find so valuable about auricular confession is that it, I take stock of the ways in which my twisted perception of my status with God plays out in my life. Um, the, the harm that I perpetrate against other people as a result of that misperception. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that reckoning doesn't happen if there's no sense that anything needs to change. And that, and that mm-hmm. taking away language of forgiveness, taking away language of repentance, um, something still has to change. And Julian would absolutely, I think, affirm something still has to change. Yes. Um, it's not just, it's not just we need to see differently. We need to live in response to what we see differently. When we sin, we have to, we have to turn to God. I mean, there is no other, there is no other way to do. Sin, sin disrupts it, it, it disrupts, uh, it ruptures our relationship with God. It, mm-hmm. it makes a a chasm between us, between God and us. And we have to turn, excuse me, we have to turn to God and confess that and be assured of God's love and, and, and have that pain relieved in us. And there's... That's, you know, there's, there's really no other way. And then we are, then we are, you know, as she says, then we are one with God and sin, sin cuts us off. Whereas repentance and confession sets us back. And I, and I think there's this, this specificity 
the specificity and the grounding in the the actual manifestation that that's important and that when i've <laughs> i mean i'm not going to name denominations but when i've gone to services that have kind of taken away this forgiveness language it disappears this sense that uh there are there are specific actions we have agency we use that agency to do damage all of that flowing from and then further reinforcing our warped perception I, I don't I don't know any other way to talk about that other than wrong and forgiveness. Even um, if we're not forgiven by God, it's still the best language we have. Even if we're not forgiven by God in Anselm's understanding, seeking forgiveness and receiving forgiveness from God in Julian's understanding is still happening so i i don't i don't i don't think we should <clears throat> take her her statement that god cannot forgive as her last statement on forgiveness i i really don't think that that's where she kind of ties the bow on the word forgiveness and sets it aside I think okay. she continues to reshape what we mean by forgiveness. And then what she's, what she's doing with this, like God cannot forgive because he cannot be angry is in a very startling way saying this transactional economy ledger system of sin is wrong. It does not reflect what is actually happening. And then she unfolds what is actually happening, but continues to use the word forgiveness to reshape what she understands this process of confession and absolution to be. In terms of the life of the church, but what about what is God doing? If God doesn't forgive in that classic Elmsonian <clears throat> sense, what is God doing? Grace God is good. And, grace and mercy. Yeah. Renewing us, hopefully, with an awareness of that peace. Right. But not forgiving but our sins. But that's worked out through what the church is doing for Julian. That that, the, the, mm -hmm. this is, this revelation is not a substitute for the life of the church. It is a, an exposition on its theological content. Do we want to move on to chapter 50 or, or do we have last things to say on chapter 49? I, th I mean, I think chapter 50 picks, picks up on this. Like she's, she's trying to bring this into further conversation with the teaching of Holy church. And, and so she's, she's setting up this famous like master Lord and servant parable that, we're going to start diving into next time in chapter 51. And, but she, she's kind of queuing that up by wrestling with this further, like the indispensable teaching and practice of Holy church and this theological depth that she's learning. 
Uh, and it, it distresses her greatly. She weeps inwardly with all her might, searching in God for help and meaning. How shall I be comforted? Who is it that shall teach me and tell me what I need to know if I cannot at this time see it in thee? Because she sees huge stakes. Like she, she needs, she sees that it is necessary for me to be aware of it for the sake of the knowledge of good and evil by which I can, by reason and grace, the more separate the good from the evil and love goodness and hate evil as Holy Church teaches. So there's this, there's this urgency with which she's bringing it back to the practice and teaching of the church. And she's trying to figure out, okay, in this life where I am trying to discern between evil and good, and and choose the good and hate the evil, um, what does this mean? And I and I think that's that's what she's that's the stage she's setting for this drama that's about to unfold in chapter fifty one. Hmm. Marguerite, what do you notice in chapter fifty? Well, one thing is that she's afraid that her showing is going to be over before she gets an answer. And so she's, she's really worried about that. And of course, from our perspective, we know that, you know, that that's sort of, um, that that's sort of funny because we know it's not over. And she says, for either it was necessary for me to see in God that sin was all done away or else it was necessary for me to see in God, how he looks at it, whereby I could truly recognize how I ought to look at sin and the manner of our guilt. And that's that's what um, that's what the parable that, that we'll be looking at is about. It's it's how God looks at sin. It's the whole, it's the dynamic of, of God looking at sin and sin happening to a person. And she does end with the, with this question, Ah, Lord Jesus, King of bliss, how shall I be comforted? Who is it that shall teach me and tell me what I need to know if I cannot at this time see it in thee? And she ends that chapter with a question, which is very unusual, almost modern. She says something very uh, important that it's easy to just keep on going right past because she's on her way to somewhere else. Um, but, mm-hmm. but it's a, a, an important theological principle, which is the bottom in the orange book, bottom of page 118. For either it was necessary for me to see in God that sin was all done away, or, and here's the important bit, or else it was necessary for me to see in God how he looks at it, whereby I could truly recognize how I ought to look at sin and the manner of our guilt. So it's this theological principle that she's laying out that she should strive, and all Christians should strive, uh, to see things the way God sees them and to change the way that we look at things to the way that God looks at things. And this is... Um, true not only for trying to comprehend how God understands sin so that she can understand sin in the same way, 
but um, arguably, and I could probably put together a sermon knit together from bits and pieces of the epistles on this, but I'm not going to. Um, arguably, it's a major portion of the um, change in conscience consciousness that is uh, the spiritual developmental task of Christians to begin to see all of creation the way God sees creation. Um, and so this, this provides, uh, it, it, it shows us that Julian is, is using this, this hermeneutic, this, this, uh, kind of foundational assumption of her intellectual work. Because there's intellectual work going on as well as just revelation, and of course in this in this book, um, uh, which is why she's such a gifted theologian as well as a mystic. Um, she's thinking through all of this, I'm sure, um, and so she's using this as a starting point for her work, which is that that why do we study theology? Why do I strive to know anything about God? so that I can see how God sees the world and assumes that the world should be so that I can change the way I see the world to be closer to the way God sees the world. So this is part and parcel of that thing that we pray for in the Lord's prayer, where we pray that thy will be done, you know, in us on earth as it is in heaven. It's a, a desire for the, the conformation of our willpower and our, desires with what God wills and desires. And insofar as we're doing that, we are happier. <laughs> and insofar as we are moving away from that, then we are uh, cutting ourselves off from life. But it's not just the will. It's not just that I want to will the same things that God does. But that is built on the idea that I that it's possible for me to see and understand what I see um, from the perspective that God sees it, which is actually a really bold thing to say that it's possible for a human, a woman, 14th century uh, woman, but really any human, it's a, it's a bold claim that it's possible for us to understand, to come to an understanding of how God perceives something as big and strange as sin and to say, if I can understand how God sees it, then that means that I can change how I see it mm-hmm. and see it how God sees it, and that's better, and that's what I should be pursuing. Um, which is a really, I mean, in 2020, it's not quite as bold as it, it must have been once upon a time, but it's daring. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very lofty uh, ideal. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a process of transformation. It, it's, it's not it's not a one and done deal for her. I think. Like the the learning the learning to see it's a it's a process of learning to see as God sees it. Mm, absolutely. Um, and failing and learning 
gradually, gradually being brought closer. Um, which of you two would like to talk a little bit about the three points that make Julian brave to ask? On page one nineteen in the in the orange book. And once again, listeners, if you if you um, if you keep hearing us talk about the orange book, we're referring to this edition of the Revelations of Divine Love. That's the Paraclete Essentials Deluxe Edition that was printed in twenty fifteen from Paraclete Press, and it's it's just got this beautiful orange cover, and it's the one that, that the three of us kind of uh, use as we're going through this. So get yourself a copy uh, if you haven't already. If only I had said that a few weeks ago, then you could have asked for it for a Christmas present, but, <laughs> but Epiphany is coming. So the three points that make me brave to ask this. The first is because it is so lowly a thing for, for a lofty thing, I would be terrified. The second is that it is so ordinary for it. If it were special and secret also, I would be terrified. The third is that it is necessary for me to be aware of it as it seems to me, if I shall live here for the sake of the knowledge of good and evil by which I can, by, uh, by reason and grace, the more separate the good from the evil and love goodness and hate evil as Holy Church teaches. It feels like there's more that we can see in these three points. But I don't know quite what, so I'm asking you. <laughs> She gets right. I mean, it's. She's quite frankly and boldly getting down to the nitty gritty. Mm. Um, necessary if I shall live here. There's. It is. Something that she feels comfortable asking of God because she is convinced that she needs to know this to live a faithful Christian life, to continue, to continue living. And it's, it's notable that she's now kind of got an eye to continuing living, not expecting her death. Um, but this this revelation, she's she's bringing it into very particular, like this worldly focus. But it is, she's like this. This revelation is great. How do I live this out? What does it What does it mean when I get up from this sickbed to live this out? And I am bold enough to ask this. One, because it is a basic thing to ask. How do I live this? And two, because it's necessary. There's this, it's a lowly thing. It's ordinary. It's like, this is, this is fundamental. And I mean, maybe all three tie back to this like this. She 
is asking God for what she needs um, to metabolize this revelation into a lived response. And the response that she gets is in chapter 51, which is where we'll be going next time. Okay, and those of you who are uh, listening, I know there's a good number of people listen to this uh, faithfully, regularly. I can tell from looking at the stats um, that a good number of you listen to this uh, whenever episodes come out, and that's great. Some of you may just be listening for the first time. But this next chapter in particular, chapter 51, um, I, I don't know whether you read ahead of time or whether you are reading along with us in the Revelations at all, but I think for this next chapter, chapter 51 of the Revelations, you will definitely want to give it a read before you listen to our next episode, because this is a, a very different from the character of, I think, a lot of the other chapters, and there's... Yeah, you, you'll just want to at least kind of skim. It's through. involved. It's involved. It's uh, this. This might actually be a two-part um, chapter. Uh, so yeah. So get yourself a copy of the Revelations of Divine Love and um, and read is uh, well the whole thing, but especially chapter fifty-one for next time. Um, it if you don't. Don't worry, it's just, you're you're not going to be completely left in the dark. But um, uh, more than any other chapter in the book, I think this will be one where you'll want to be a little bit prepared before you listen to what we have to say. I have no idea what we're going to say, but I can tell you, uh, it it's do a little homework first. So chap chapter 51 in the revelations of divine love. That's, that's what we're talking about next time. Would either of you like to pick out a, a bit to, to close and read it out? I want to, to I want to touch back to this, this process of almost Eucharistic transformation of woes. Thus I saw that when we are holy in peace and in love, we find no contrariness or any kind of hindrance. And that contrariness which is now in us, our Lord God of his goodness makes most profitable for us. Because that contrariness is the cause of our tribulations and all our woe, and our Lord Jesus takes those and sends them up to heaven, and there they are made more sweet and delectable than heart can think or tongue can tell. And when we come there, we shall find them ready, all transformed into truly beautiful and endless honors. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.